0: Father, we thank You that our vantage point in history affords us the amazing truth of looking back upon the Incarnation. We will read a passage of Scripture that was written long before Emmanuel, God with us, Christ in flesh, appeared. Long before He was conceived in the womb of a virgin. Long before he stooped low, setting aside and veiling for a time his glorious heavenly prerogative to take on the form of a servant to accomplish our salvation. And now we, the great heirs of this act, believers in this room, rejoice that Emmanuel, God himself in the flesh, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We recognize with the testimony of your scriptures and the experience of all the saints as we rejoice what this meant. This meant that the sacrifice, the lamb that could take away the sins of the world, the one who could die in our place and satisfy the wrath of a just God, had come, had took, taken on the weight of our regem- redemption. We thank you, Lord, for this promise that, ha- that happened in time that is ours in Christ. And we thank you that for your word that proclaims it. And now as we enter into the scriptures and seek deeper understanding, I pray that you would be glorified in the proclamation thereof, and that you would write these truths upon the tables of our hearts, that we might be more moved to more praise still upon further revelation of the greatness of our God and his salvation wrought in time for his elect by the power of the triune God, invading history and accomplishing what only you could do. Thank you for this time we have together. May you multiply it for the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning we worship the Lord by turning in the pages of our scripture to Psalm 98 to behold the scriptures and what they declare of our Messiah from ages past, even in the Psalter. So turn there with me, if you would, this morning, Psalm 98. There's a couple of possible titles that I considered for my message today. And I settled upon nations and nature sing nations and nature sing. However, a second title also occurred to me, which could be another line from that famous hymn, joy to the world, which we sang this morning, receive your King, receive your King the aim of this morning's message is to echo scripture's call to worship unto all creation and especially his church. This call to worship is a call to receive our King or to welcome the reality of the presence of the great and awesome sovereign among his people. And this call to worship is such that it goes forth to the extent of all creation, bidding every voice, Even the sun sets over the hills, as it were, the mountains that rise into the clouds, the rivers that stretch into the distance, the seas that cover most of this globe to join with the voices of all of the redeemed. And indeed, the commandment goes forth to all living inhabitants of this world to praise the name of our great God, who not only is responsible for all this creation from its very inception in the beginning. Who's not only responsible for maintaining it by the word of his son's power, even this day, but is also responsible for securing hope, a living hope, according to 1 Peter, for every true believer. This, the greatest miracle of all. With your Bible open to Psalm 98, would you stand out of reverence for the word of God this morning? And behold, in your hearing, the proclaimed word of our God from Psalm 98 The title, simply, a psalm. Verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Verse 7, let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Do you see how the psalmist calls nations, all the peoples of the earth, and all of nature itself to sing? nations and nature sing. Do you see how this psalm is something of a coronation hymn, a fitting psalm to receive your king? It is a call to praise and honor and reverence, to lift up, to extol, to magnify the majesty of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 98 is sixth in a matching set of eight psalms. We've referenced this a number of times in this section. These psalms all share the theme to magnify the universal lordship of Yahweh. Yahweh, the revealed name of the covenant keeper, the great God, the one true God, the high and holy one, the self-existent one revealed to Moses and to his people and through all his scriptures and to all his own king of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, the one who keeps his promises, who who sustains the universe, who accomplishes salvation he is Lord universally. The extent of his realm is unto all that there is. All the cosmos must hear the command and bow before his lordship or else. Psalm 98 in particular is meant to inspire a crescendo of praise. A crescendo of praise from all possible corners of creation. Do you know what a crescendo is? Perhaps you've been to a concert with a 32-piece ensemble or whatever they have, you know, at a classical music, uh, you know, deal going on and orchestras there, the conductors there, all the instrumentation, perhaps there's even more, there's sound and there's lights and this whole immersive experience starts quite subtly, perhaps with strings and a beautiful uh, melody. And as that sound hits your ears, it begins to pull you in, pull you closer, draw you in to this, Uh, experience of the music. And as the piece begins to build, drums are added to strings, are added to horns, are added to choral voices, singers, and the lights and everything in that immersive concert hall builds to a great crescendo until it's almost as if the music and the experience could gather you up and carry you away. Psalm 98 in particular is meant to inspire a crescendo of praise from all possible corners of creation, striving for an expression of worship worthy of the sovereign over all things, from salvation to final judgment. Psalm 98 is often noted for its incarnation themes, and it is the foundational inspiration for Isaac Watts' famous hymn, Joy to the World. We sang that hymn today, think of its words, Joy to the world, uh, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. I have to sing it to remember that its its lyrics. But if you think about the phrases and themes of that psalm, is a call for all the world to express worthy affections upon the revelation of its Lord and Savior. Her Lord and Savior revealed. To their understanding, in the case of believers, in the case of saints, our consciousness and our spirit rejoices with the joy of the knowledge of who the Lord is and what he has accomplished for us. But also even the hills and the valleys, even the rivers and the streams are summoned to join that course of joy to the world because we have received our king. The uh, Mary herself, Mary the mother of Jesus, parallels many of the themes of Psalm 98 in her own new song of worship. Upon considering the significance of her bearing the Messiah and His victory, which is imminent in history. Just for a parallel text, would you turn with me to Luke 1, 46? Joel, you want to check my mic? I sound like I'm ringing just a bit. Luke 1, 46 through 55. In this passage, Mary has received the news She has shared with her cousin Elizabeth the inestimable privilege of bearing two babies that will be absolutely central to the plan of salvation. John the Baptist is in the womb of Elizabeth, her cousin Elijah, who was prophesied to go before, so to speak, according to the Old Testament prophets. Mary herself bears the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah in her womb. And so she has received her king. Mary has received her king into her own womb, as it were. She has said to the Holy Spirit himself, be it unto me according to your word. And so what is an expression of praise worthy of this moment? A moment that none of us can really fully fathom. Even Mary herself, no doubt, is absolutely overwhelmed at this revelation. She says, Luke 1:46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. There are at least five parallels, which we don't have time to expound, but worthy of another sermon for sure, between Psalm 98 and Mary's Magnificat, her song in Luke 1, 46 through 55. The psalmist exalts the right hand and the holy arm of the Lord, of Yahweh, that has worked salvation for Him. Likewise, Mary exalts in her hymn of praise, that the Lord has shown, He has shown strength with His arm, and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In Psalm 98, again, as we read in verse 4, verse 3, the psalmist recalls, he proclaims that the Lord has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness, to the house of Israel the covenant people recalling all the promises to the covenant heads of old like Abraham who we've been studying and so Mary herself echoes at the moment where this was coming to pass he has helped his servant Israel Luke 154 and remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever so those are just two parallels but on, on your own time study more because in these two references of Scripture, we have the prophetic proclamation of the King's arrival in the future, and we have the present acknowledgement of the King's arrival in the womb of Mary, and thus fulfilling many of these themes that had preceded her by hundreds, yea, thousands of years. Furthermore, Mary was not the only, Mary's was not the only song which greeted the Messiah, Jesus Christ, upon the earth. You recall, and in our worship text today, we read of this, uh, this event where angels themselves, populating the realms of glory, sang a new song the night of Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest. Incidentally, that's what gloria in excelsis deo means. That's the Latin for glory to God in the highest. This was first echoed by the hosts of heaven. That is the armies, the multitudes, the population of the glorious beings that serve to honor and praise and do the will of our father they were there in a huge angelic chorus announcing the arrival receiving their king the day that he was born with that majestic song of praise glory to god in the highest on the earth peace with those peace to those with whom he is pleased thus these songs are compiled in scripture Psalm 98 the Song of the Angels, and Luke 2, 8-14, through 14, the Song of Mary, Luke 1, 46, joining many more. These songs are compiled in Scripture, multiplying the praiseworthy glories of Jesus Christ across the scope of His works in history, even unto His second coming, which is anticipated in the refrain or the close of Psalm 98. Now, just to give you an idea of the tenor and tone of Psalm 98, I want you to imagine for a moment... A scene in medieval era, those times where there was lords and knights and criers and uh, uh, you know, messages were delivered the, the old-fashioned way. A town crier goes into the center of town, into the plaza, and he begins to cry, hear ye, hear ye. This is the job, this is the calling of the herald. This is a message that has gone out throughout the entire king or lord's realm. The town crier cries, hear ye, hear ye, and the message is proclaimed throughout the entire region that this king controls. Yet it is likely that only a percentage of the people may heed the word that follows that summons. This is the tone and spirit of Psalm 98. This message, this cry, this heralding voice goes forth over all creation crying, hear ye, hear ye both nations and nature. Listen, pay attention, receive your king. Those who heed the word will join that triumphal chorus. They will dress fit to receive the royal sovereign. They will gather at the place where he will appear. They will come and they will lay down in the triumphal entry, their cloaks before Jesus, who is arriving on the coal, the foal of a donkey, to receive His crown, as it were, in His work of salvation as the mighty King who will, in short order, in that picture in the gospel, defeat death and sin and hell, even at the cross that He will bear. Psalm 98 anticipates this triumphal entry, a coronation ceremony, a triumphal chorus upon the return of the great King. However, there are those who will not join that chorus who will not heed the word, who shove their fingers in their ear when the gospel herald cries, hear ye, hear ye, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for them, their fate will be the opposite. They will prove to be the conquered foes whose defeat is commemorated by the victory anthem itself. In this way, the universal sovereignty of Yahweh is evident in the salvation of His people and in the judgment His enemies. This is the full scale proclamation, the testimony of all, all of Scripture, of the Lordship of Yahweh, the Kingdom of our God. Psalm 98 also has an electric air of a coronation ceremony to honor three things. These are in your notes in the introductory paragraph the office, the anointing, and the authority of the great sovereign. So a coronation ceremony is something that is virtually culturally lost on us these days. We don't have monarchs the way we used to, and global governments are more likely to have a parliamentary system or a legislature or a president and so forth. The few remaining semblances of a monarchy are in figurehead only and are more often the butt of jokes than they are a subject of awe and respect. But let us not, let this be a shortcoming for us. Imagine the electric air of a coronation ceremony where the honor of the office, anointing, and authority of a great sovereign is signaled and celebrated. And this is the call of Psalm 98. And our king is greater than all other kings, and his glory so far surpasses that words fail us to describe his beauty, his power, his might, the extent, the the, uh, glories of His office, His anointing, and His authority. Therefore, Psalm 98 helps us to strive to reclaim this sense of significance and reverence. So let us do so. Let us make a joyful noise at every opportunity, as we've even begun our service doing as much this day, make a joyful noise at every opportunity before our King, receiving Him, joining the voice of nations and nature, proclaiming and crowning Him our Lord and God. Psalm 98 calls our attention to do this in three ways. First, the author points out occasions for praise. Secondly, instruments of praise. And thirdly, realms of praise. A very nice division in our text today. First three verses. Psalm 98 calls our attention to occasions for praise. Verses 4-6. through Second triad of verses, instruments of praise. We'll close this morning with verses 7 through 9, realms of praise. And just a note, there's so many points of symmetry and beauty in this poem, in this song. But here's one to pay attention to. In those first three verses, a commentator has pointed out, they are in the past tense. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for He has done marvelous things. But note verses 4 through 6, it's a present tense call. Make a joyful noise today, that is to say, all the earth, break forth. It's a command in the present. It's a call and and it's a heat or it's an admonition to praise right now. Thirdly, there is a future orientation. Let the seas roar and so forth before the Lord in verse 9, for He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness. So even in the tenses that are employed in this song, we have a picture we have an illustration of the full-scale reign and lordship of our sovereign Yahweh the Lord. He is the king, he is the Lord of the past. He is the ever-reigning and ruling sovereign of the present. And he is the majestic authority who proclaims and accomplishes his law and word and will in the future, even the ultimate consummation of his kingdom at his second coming." So first of all, we have occasions for praise that are emphasized in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. Marvelous things are synonymous with or can be understood as occasions for worship, for praise. Also, a quick note, and this is a great application. Last night, I went through this text. Just a note for you, if you have... A family worship regularly with your family during the week. One idea is you could cover the next week's sermon on Saturday night, and that's what we tend to do. And in your notes, you'll notice on the bottom for Saturday this week on that family worship schedule is our text for next week. So in preparation for this message and to prepare our hearts to receive the word, I asked my family, what are some marvelous things that God has done? There's two categories you could consider. The marvelous things that are listed in Scripture. Also, you could consider the marvelous things that you've experienced. The Lord in His providence and His grace towards you has done marvelous things. If you're a believer in this room, He has rescued you and ransomed you from the judgment due to your sin. He has called you to new life and set your feet. From, He's pulled them from the miry clay and set them on the cornerstone foundation of Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. He has ransomed you. From the slavery of sin, He has resurrected you from the death of the same. This is a great, marvelous thing that the Lord has done. But ask yourself of the marvelous things that God has done in the Scripture. One of the reasons the Bible is so long is because there is a multiplication, uh, a record, a cumulative case of more and more and more marvelous things that God has done. No doubt these are in the back of the mind of the author as he writes. Creation itself was one answer that came from some of my kids yesterday. He has made us. That's a marvelous thing that God has done. He has made the earth, the seas, the world, the rivers, the hills that sing for joy, which is a poetic way of saying they display the beauty that speaks of the fingerprint of their creator who formed them by the word of his power in Genesis 1 where it's recorded in the first place. These are marvelous things that God has done. A marvelous thing that God has done is prepared a way for salvation, even prophesying the same from that Proto-Evangelion, or the very first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, wherein it is prophesied over the serpent himself that he can expect a head-crushing blow one day by the seed of the woman. This messianic prophecy fulfilled in time and the line preserved to accomplish the same is a marvelous thing that God has done. And of course, this is pictured all through the scriptures. His judgments that are worthy of the sinner in the great flood that washes away a wicked culture and the world that was. His deliverance from Egypt and the flood waters again, collapsing on the enemies of his people at the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. We've been studying Abraham, Abram and his story, and soon in our text in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah will receive the sulfur rain of God's punishment and God's judgments from heaven as the wickedness of that city is buried under celestial fire from glory. These are the marvelous things that God has done. These are occasions for praise. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. What is a new song? Well, to sing a new song is, let me submit, to recognize with proportional and appropriate praise each new occasion to worship our majestic Lord. Let me say that again. What is a new song or what is the act of offering a new song? It is, I submit, to recognize with proportional and appropriate praise each new occasion to worship our majestic Lord. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, as I just mentioned, was it not worthy of a new song? Yes, it was. And so Miriam with her timbrel and Moses with his proclamation echoed as much, I believe, in Exodus 15 or thereabouts. A new song was offered to the Lord. It was a proportional and appropriate praise because of the occasion of this majestic thing that the Lord had accomplished among his people. We reference Mary. Mary sang a new song. It was an appropriate response. It was a proportional praise recorded in Scripture. Uh, indeed, for us to read in Luke 1:46 through 55, which recognized the incarnation itself, the fact that Christ was growing as a babe inside of her. It was an appropriate expression to worship the Lord, and it was an occasion for worship. There are three references to salvation in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. This is salvation secured. The works of God could, so many could be categorized under that heading. Salvation secured. Secondly, there's salvation revealed, verse 2. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. The things that the Lord has done can fall under that second category as well. He has revealed, He has made known, He has made manifest His salvation. Thirdly, salvation remembered, verse 3. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen The salvation of our God. Occasions for praise include salvation secured, salvation revealed, and salvation remembered. Salvation secured, this is associated or it's correlated with the right hand and holy arm analogy. References that Mary echoes in so many words. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Just a reminder, but the right hand in Scripture is that which one has the strength to do on purpose. You use your right hand, it represents the dominant hand, it represents the actions of a conscious being doing what he intends to do and having a purposeful intent with that action. Uh, Think of something that your right hand is trained well to do. Perhaps you know how to sew, and so you take your right hand and you weave that needle through the thread, or you take both hands and you crochet and do this, that, and the other. For some of you ladies in the room, that might be something that your right hand has trained to do. For myself, I build homes, and so my right hand is very useful in the course of the day to hang sheetrock is what I've been doing lately. This is something that we purpose, or these are examples of things we purpose to do and accomplish with our strength. How much more so the Lord's right hand? Do you think that which God intends to do he has the power to accomplish absolutely it would be blasphemy to say otherwise his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him ultimately salvation is for the sake of the lord yes it is for our sake secondarily yes it is a blessing and it is the rescue of the sinner from his sin but Ultimately, it was his plan to pur- and purpose to glorify himself in the ransoming of his bride, wherein he will receive the praise for that exploit and that marvelous thing from age to age as as nations and nature sing of the power of his right hand and the power of his holy arm to accomplish for him his salvation. Salvation in the Old Testament context generally generally refers to Deliverance from existential enemies of the people of God. Existential, don't be scared of that word. It's just the adjective form of existence. Deliverance from existential enemies of the people of God. So enemies that threaten the existence of God's people. Salvation would be deliverance from them. The Midianites are surrounding the people of God. It's an existential enemy, an existential threat. The Lord delivers his people by raising up Gideon and his small band, and the Lord gets the glory when these 300 rout thousands, and they turn and fight each other. That was a threat to the existence of the people of God, that the deliverance through his servant Gideon wrought, or that the Lord gave deliverance over in that marvelous thing that he accomplished. This is what salvation means in the Old Testament, at least in its immediate context. But this is easy to apply across the board. And with New Testament revelation, we can see what these things prefigure by simply asking this question, what is the biggest enemy? What is the biggest existential threat to us as people? The scriptures go on to say, don't fear the Midianite, so to speak, who can kill the body, the flesh, but fear the one who has the ability to cast both body and soul into hell. The biggest existential enemy that we will ever face according to 1 Corinthians 15, is death itself. This raises the question, will the right hand and the holy arm of our Lord be strong enough to work salvation against this threat? Yes, indeed. Jesus Christ is declared, in Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15, as the victor over the enemy of the soul. Even the last enemy death. Thus, in the gospel, we have salvation secured. The threats of old Pharaoh, surrounding nations, enemies of God's people, famine, plague, sword, are all typological of the greatest enemy of all, indeed the wages of sin, death itself. Yet salvation secured and proclaimed in Psalm 98 assures us that God's right hand and His holy arm are powerful to accomplish, to secure our salvation. Verse 2, this salvation is revealed. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The Old Testament testimony of triumph went out to the surrounding peoples. The nations that bordered Canaan, Israel, as Israel took possession of it, they quaked in their boots because they heard a testimony. Ambassadors had come, heralds had given them the news that Pharaoh, the most fearsome army with all his chariots and superior technology had been drowned by the hand that is the right hand and the holy arm of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, in one fell swoop and one fateful night. And so that message went forth. And in so doing, the salvation of the Lord was revealed. The, salvi- the saving of his people was proclaimed and the gospel, the good news of his power to save his own was revealed in the sight of the nations. And more, more than this, his righteousness his power to judge his enemies, his law, which ultimately cannot be broken without repercussions, was proclaimed and evident, and demonstrated among the peoples. His salvation is continually revealed. Today, through the Great Commission proclamation of the gospel, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ yet go forth and they command all men everywhere nations and nature to sing, as it were. All peoples of all nations, the command is to repent and to believe. And the command in so doing is to point to the whole counsel of God and say, look at this evidence. Look at the revelation of His right hand and holy arm to judge His enemies. And now look at His right hand and holy arm that was stretched out on Calvary and pierced for your transgressions. And in that holy act, on that cruel implement of crucifixion, executive torture, your sins were atoned for if you only repent and believe. This is salvation revealed. This is the testimony of triumph among the peoples. It goes forth today in the proclamation of the gospel through the prophecy of the word of God published on the lips of those who proclaim what has been written infallibly and inerrantly for His people to declare to a world even today, and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the people will see. As God appoints them to believe, they will see the mighty works of our God, the marvelous things that He has done, securing salvation and revealing it to the lost. Third reference of salvation, remembered. Verse 3, He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness, To the house of Israel. Think of our covenant example, significant son, Abraham, in the context of our recent message. Young people, can you name a promise that God made to Abraham? Someone in the room, a a young person, can you name a promise that God made to Abraham? Yes? Very good. Very good. His population will be as much as the sand of the beach. Uh, Eliza promised Abraham. Well, that God would give him a son in his old age. That's awesome. Any other? Yes, Isaac, over here. Uh, I didn't follow that one, but uh, we'll check up on you later. Vera, did you have anything to add? These are very good examples. Thank you, young people. What you are remembering as you recount the promises that God made to Abraham, you are giving us examples of covenant that God made with His significant Son, with the one who was called out to be a picture of Christ to come, a covenant head who had certain promises attached to His lineage. He would have children. He would have offspring that would outnumber the sands of the sea in this poetic language or the stars in the sky. He would have a child in His old age. Now, when Abraham was getting long in years, he was tempted to doubt that the Lord would remember his covenant. He had no children, and he came up with plan B. And it has seemed foolish for him to go around, even with a name that meant the father of many, when he had no biological son to name after himself or to expect his family lineage to continue. However, the message of Abraham's story is for a purpose... It's to remind the people of God throughout all the ages to have hope and patience. Do not secure your hope and patience upon your limited perspective of your own expectations, but do so on the security of the promises that God has made and accomplished through His history of redemption. Yes, the Lord remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. The Lord remembered His promise that He made to Abram soon to be Abraham. The Lord gave Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age, and he is giving him even more sons, too many to count even this day. Young people in the room, did you know if you are a believer in Jesus Christ that you yourself are a son and a daughter of Abraham? Did you know that? The scriptures say that spiritually speaking, the children of Abraham include all of the elect. Every believer who confesses faith in God's purposes that he accomplished through the history of his redemption. This is salvation remembered. These are marvelous things that God has done. Here emphasizing the covenant context. Promises to the children of Abraham. These promises include, as we mentioned, and among other things, light to the nations, a multiplying of offspring, a substitute sacrifice, a seed to bruise Satan's head, and it goes on and on. So these are occasions for praise. Now, there are two corresponding, there are two parallel passages that we won't have time to get into today, but I want you to mark them for further study. Note 1 Chronicles 15 and 2 Chronicles 20. They should be in your notes. 1 Chronicles 15 and 2 Chronicles 20. Why? Because these are other occasions in Scripture for the worship, much like Psalm 98. In both of these examples, in First Chronicles 15, it's the returning of the Ark of the Covenant to a prominent place among the peoples. It had been buried in obscurity in the house of Obed-Edom, and now Israel's anointed King David is returning the central fixture of God's promises and presence among the people to its rightful place of prominence. And as he does so, he commissions music and joyful songs of praise to accompany that journey of the Ark along the way. And the instruments that are proclaim- or the instruments that are laid out in Psalm 98, are employed in that task. And the song has the same air of joyful praise. It is a ceremony to receive a king, not David. David takes a second a back seat to the king whose presence is between the cherubim atop the Ark of the Covenant. This is the true king of Israel. A second example: Jehoshaphat's defeat of the Edomite armies. In 2 Chronicles 20, they are surrounded, Israel, at this time by their enemies, and the king does not know what to do by way of strategy and to the salvation, to the everlasting salvation of the people, at least materially speaking. He does not rely on his armies or technology or strategy, but seeks the counsel of the Lord. And what does he do? But he rallies troops of a different sort and songs of victory. Over Israel's enemies are lifted up, and instruments are employed. And they cry out to the Lord, and they fast, and they pray, and they worship, and the Lord delivers Israel from her enemies. These are all occasions for praise that correspond to the theme of Psalm 98, calling our attention to these types of things in verses 1 through 3. Second major point today Psalm 98 calls attention to occasions for praise, and then secondly, instruments of praise, verses 4 through 6. In the present tense, the author proclaims, make a joyful noise. He commands, in fact, he summons those who have the ability to worship the Lord and a heart to do the same. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Who knows what a liar is? Uh, young people, anyone want to shout out? A liar, is someone that lies. liar is someone that lies. Yeah, very good. L-I-A-R. What about L-Y-R-E? Uh, kind of instrument. That is correct. A liar is what kind of instrument? Wind instrument? String instrument? Anyone have any ideas? String. I believe you're correct. Near as we can tell, the lyre is similar to a harp. It's a stringed instrument. It's an instrument something like David would use to play beautiful melodies to soothe the anguished heart of the king. Remember, David was called to uh, soothe Saul, and he would play on his harp in his court. But this isn't the only kind of instrument listed here. There's a number of them. The first instrument, if you will, is joyous song, the instrument of our voice. Clapping of hands is referred to later Sometimes uh, we hear of our hands referred to as 10-string instrument. Instrument, broadly speaking, is something that is used in the ceremonial or the liturgical offering of the Lord of praise and worship. And so to give Him praise, we summon our ability to magnify the expression of the glory that He deserves, and we find in our arsenal to do exactly this, a joyful noise, joyous song, praises to the Lord, sung and played on lyre with sweet melodies, trumpets, horns, and again a joyful noise before the King and the Lord. Does anyone remember this idea, a structure in the text that's one of my favorites, called a chiastic structure? It's basically a pattern of ideas. Now note this, there's a chiastic structure in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 begins with this idea of a joyful noise. Verse 6 ends with a repetition of that same idea. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So those ideas kind of bracket this section, which expounds instruments of praise. Then you move to the next idea, 4B. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. This idea of breaking forth, this aggressive, explosive, and crescendo and climatic sound of praise. And that's paired in 6A with, the trumpets, and the sound of the horn. So break forth with joyous song and sing praises. Do so accompanied with instruments that have this explosive ability to proclaim the glories of God, even trumpets and horns. Then we get to the next idea. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre, the sound of the melody. So that is repeated twice. Lyre and lyre, break forth, and trumpets and horns, joyful noise, joyful noise. What the symmetry seems to indicate is a poetic way of giving a picture of a musical, almost a, a, um, giving us an idea of a musical expression. That is, there are quiet, tender string, strings, uh, uh, instruments that are employed to give beautiful melodies to the Lord. But there is also an expression that includes the trumpets and horns and the breaking out of joyful noise, illustrating, if you will, the rise and fall dynamic of musical expression, everything from tender melodies to climatic triumph, tender melodies to climatic triumph. Should this be any surprise to us when we consider the breadth and the extent of God's marvelous works? Our God is the one who will leave the 99 and will go on a journey to find one lost sheep and tenderly, in the parable that Jesus gives, untangle the thorns of this world and its sinful entrapments, and rescue us and carry us as we were like a sheep in the arms of our great shepherd back to the fold. This is our shepherd, tender, loving, caring, and individually calling and wooing his own. This is the Lord, our God. But the Lord, our God, the same great shepherd, revealed in Revelation has eyes of flaming fire and a sword two-edged proceeding from his mouth and robes that glow with blinding light and a belt as bright and pure as any gold you could imagine, magnified exponentially beyond all comprehension. And this King of kings and Lord of lords, by a word of his power, can defeat his enemies in one fell swoop of his right hand and his holy arm even raising the level of the blood in the valley of Armageddon to the horse's bridle. And so it is no surprise that the dynamics of musical expression that are called upon to give to the Lord glory due His name include everything from the tender melodies of the lyre to the climatic triumph of the trumpet and horn." This is something of the joyous song that the author of Psalm 98 calls us to employ in this assembly of instruments of praise. Joyous song, lyre and melody, trumpets and horn. Lyre and melody seem to be paralleled also with expressions in nature. If we move a little further down, we see this call to the rivers to clap their hands and the hills to sing for joy together. Hills singing for joy together invokes this idea of harmony and melody. Rivers and babbling brooks and their clapping hands, as it were, it's a poetic expression of the beautiful sounds of nature. Uh, One example I was thinking of is when the ice goes out in this neck of the woods around springtime. The warm winds of spring blow across that icy expanse on a lake, and soon it is broken up, it becomes honeycomb, And the whole vast expanse of water is filled with wind chimes. And it's a breathtaking experience. As you hear the lake singing, as it were, praises to its creator. With the wind chimes of melting ice echoing the glories that Psalm 98 has called nature and nations to echo to the Lord. But there are other sounds in nature that will make you go deaf if you're close enough. Think of an earthquake, think of the collapse of an avalanche, think of a tsunami rising and washing away a shoreline, think of a tornado picking up the strongest structures we can try to build and ripping the roof right off, crashing windows and sending vehicles hurtling through the air for hundreds and hundreds of yards. Let the seas roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. And so the instruments of praise that are employed in musical form include everything from these beautiful sounds of melody and harmony to the cacophonous climatic crescendo of trumpet and horn, and this is echoed by expressions in nature, where the sea exalts the Lord with its crashing waves against the rocks of a distant shoreline, and the rivers babble, and the brooks roll, and the hills echo choruses and harmony of the beautiful praise that our God deserves. So here we have Psalm 98 calling our attention to occasions for praise and instruments of praise. Finally this morning, future tense, realms of praise. We've touched on this a bit already, but the realms of praise not only include His gathered assembly, which is priority, let me submit. The praises of God's people are the most treasured of all His worshipful possessions we can say, I believe, that the price of Christ's blood was such that it purchased our souls, and because of the sheer expense that he paid, the expressions from your heart and your lips on a Sunday morning of worship to the Lord are more precious than all the melodies and harmonies the hills or the seas could boast. So will you bring them? Do you remember that song we sometimes sing at Christmas time? Uh, the little drummer boy, come they told me, pa pum pum and so forth. And what is the little drummer, why is the little drummer boy sad? Why is the little drummer boy sad? Does anyone remember, kids? Yes? Anyone remember? Why is he sad? He's, he's poor, that is correct. I have no gift to bring. In this picture, this sort of parabolic picture, this little drummer boy, all he has is his drum. So what does he do? He realizes that his drum can be a gift. And so he plays for him. He plays for him. And we might feel like we are poor. We don't have much to offer. But think of the widow and her two mites. It's a biblical expression. And she offers it to the Lord. Something like the equivalent of two pennies in your piggy bank, kids. But she does so with a heart of reverence for her king. She is receiving her king with her two mites which, relatively speaking, represent her whole fortune. But this sound, that tiny clinking sound of those mites falling in the coffers in the temple was more beautiful to the ears of the Lord of glory than the money bags that were dumped by the rich and the influential and the famous who did so just so their neighbors could hear the sound of bronze and gold clinking upon the bottom of that collection box. The point is that your worship from a sincere heart is valuable to the Lord. And when you think about the marvelous things that he has done for you, it is right for us to cry, Lord, give me more that I might offer back to you. He has given you a voice. He has given you the ability to think about the great blessing of your salvation. He has given you the ability to express that to him in praises that he solicits from your mouth, from your heart, from your thoughts, and from your actions as you leave and go about your business. This week, you can proclaim his marvelous things in the way that you choose to orient your life. As you gather with the assembly of the beloved next week, you can bring a precious offering to him and joining us to make a joyful noise, to break forth with joyous song, even with our voices, our hands, the lyre as it were, trumpet, the horn, and so forth. The sea, the world, the rivers, the hills, and its people are called to praise. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell therein dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Why? Before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The last sub point under realms of praise is reprisal. That is an echo of the beginning theme. The marvelous things that the Lord has done, securing salvation, revealing it, remembering his promises and salvation. Those marvelous things. That theme comes back in the close of Psalm 98. He comes to judge the earth. The judgment of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, his rule and reign, the establishment of his kingdom which brings for his people a great comfort. Think of those words we've expounded of late. The daughters of Judah rejoice. Psalm 97 verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. This fits with Psalm 98.9. He comes to judge the earth, to judge the world with righteousness, and the peoples with equity. And for those who are in good standing with the king, this is a great comfort. The daughters of Judah, that is, the most vulnerable and the most innocent among the people of God, even the daughters in this expression, they rejoice because of the judgments of God, because of his rule and reign, because of his righteous and holy law, because of the social order of his kingdom, because of the way that he has ordained all things to bring praise to his name and to fit their created intent and reestablishing and reclaiming and renewing restoring and reconciling all this world unto him. This is a cause for praise when the Lord comes. But as we mentioned in the introduction, there is also a cause for praise in that when the Lord comes, his second coming in the Greek, it's called parousia. We've used that word to describe a concept in scripture of the coming of the Lord. For those who are not in right standing, for the idolaters, for the Babel architects, the coming of the Lord is a dreaded thought indeed. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day of judgment. It's a day where everyone must account for their every word and action, and only those under the atoning blood of Jesus Christ will get through that court case unscathed. The rest will receive in the pictures of old a tearing down of their tower, a raining of sulfur from heaven, a separating of the sheep from the goats, and the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff is burned with fire, and the goats are condemned to hell eternal. And so this is the day that Psalm 98 anticipates, where his kingdom comes, and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Where our king defeats the last enemy, death, and all that is left are those who have rejected and rebelled, cast out into eternal darkness, wherein there is weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. But those who have embraced and anticipated, who have their hearts trained with the worship that Psalm 98 commands of us to receive their King, they enter the threshold of the new heavens and new earth with songs of praise, joyful expression, joyous songs, lyre and melody, trumpet and horn, beyond all imagination, as the voice that Revelation describes joining those besides others besides others becomes like a rushing, mighty waterfall, filling the ears of all of the redeemed with the praises that the Lamb so deserved from the throats of all who are rescued by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Will you join your voice with the seas that roar? Will you clap your hands with the rivers that testify to their Creator? Will you sing for joy in melody and harmony with the hills that display His abundant, His magnified beauty across the landscape of this world. Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, instruct us, study this on your own time, that not just the hearts of the redeemed, but indeed there is a cry from creation that yet groans under the weight of sin, longing to be free from that which holds it back, longing for the revelation of the Son's of God. This is the realm of praise in creation itself, crying out to be restored. And it joins the cry from the heart of every true believer for reconciliation with the holy God. We are, as Peter has told us, and we're studying as well in communion, Sundays, strangers, aliens, and exiles, right? What are we, kids? What does Peter call us in First Peter 1? Someone shouted out, what are we? Anyone remember? Jesus' is sheep, First Peter 1, we are elect something. Exiles. Elect exiles, that is correct. Elect exiles cry out for their homeland. Elect exiles recognize that the realms of praise will be transformed in the future. And they look forward to this day. They face it with the hope of eternal life. So we close this message, consider this. Psalm 98 is eternally preserved in the canon, is in the Bible. Psalm 98 is forever preserved in the Word of God, awaiting the fullness of its prophetic expression when it will be sung upon the return of Christ at His majestic second coming. There are appropriate times, even at the deliverance of yourself from your own sin, to sing Psalm 98. But there is a moment yet in time that Psalm 98 and its singers are waiting for where it will be manifest in its fullest expression. And this will be at the second coming of our Lord and Savior. Psalm 98 will be in our throats, if you're a believer in this room, as we receive Jesus Christ, our King of kings, the champion of our souls and our salvation, as he redeems the full rewards from his sufferings and inaugurates his new heaven and new earthly kingdom on this planet forever and without end. Nations and nature will sing unimpeded by death, sorrow, sin, sickness, anymore. Psalm 98 is waiting for that day. At this second advent, he, Jesus Christ, will execute perfect judgment, delivering his people and all creation from the futility and bondage of post-fall corruption, even as he vanquishes every last enemy in judicial reckoning, even as he destroys death once and for all. Here's a question. What state of heart allows the worshipers to welcome the coming of the Lord in judgment with songs of anticipation? What state of heart allows the worshipers to welcome this day with anticipation? Only those who are in right standing with Him. Only those who have received the assurance of pardon for their own sins through the saving work of their Messiah. Only those who have experienced the steadfast love and faithfulness extended to the house of Israel that is to say only those who have confessed their sins repented of their lawbreaking and rebellion against the Lord of glory they have bowed their knee to the king of kings they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ their savior lord messiah ascended and reigning king they are the ones who can hear and sing Psalm 98 and anticipate with their state of heart welcoming the King. They can receive Him on the final day without a doubt in their mind that they will join Him in praise forever in His glorious new world. Will you be there? Will you be there? I pray this morning as we close this message in prayer that you would search your heart. Search your heart and see if Jesus is your King, if you have truly believed His gospel. And if not, I beg you to bow before His Lordship this day, confess your sins and join Him in His victorious triumph over hell, over the grave, over your sin and over all nations until such time as he is enthroned without challenger forever and ever. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the power of the Spirit who will use these tools in his hand to draw the lost unto confession of their sin, repentance, and faith. We pray that his work would be fruitful in this regard, both calling lost to salvation and equipping the saints to anticipate with hearts stirred, to, with living hope toward that glorious end that all creation and all the saints long for, the revealing of the sons of God and purity and perfection on that final day. Lord, this season, as we set aside even Coltry, some moments to remember the foundation of our faith secured in the incarnation, maybe you move us beyond sentimentality, and mere ceremony and cultural niceties. And may you establish in our heart an absolute foundational understanding that is unshaken by any enemy of the world, by the devil, by our own flesh, that would seek to discourage and unseat our faith, that we might be found on that final day with hands aloft, with hearts full of praise, with voices lifted in joyous song, receiving our great King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.